Welcome to the Archive Room podcast, stories of Manx life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. Manx Radio. Faster my Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So, come on in, and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. September is here, autumn is on the way, and the children are back at school, and I hope they're taking with them memories of a happy summer holiday. And I thought we might start our programme today with some summer childhood memories from the early 1900s, when toys were in short supply, but there was boundless energy and loads of imagination, stimulated, of course, by where you happen to live when you're growing up. Lewin Kane lived on Douglas Head Road all his life. So as a child in the 1920s, his playground was the harbour, as he explained when he was in his late 80s and exploring his old haunts in the company of David Collister. Well, you, you found your own uh, playground in the harbour. You'd borrow a dinghy or rowboat from somebody. That was you. Mm. And out to the piers you went, and God knows if he going to go back again. But you didn't mind that. Douglas Head was a great playground. And, of course, in the summertime, it was thronged with people, Fellman's, Perios, yeah, and the electric trams to Port Sodrick, and the incline from the battery pier up to the top of the head. The day wasn't half long enough. And I feel sure that a young Victor Neal would have said exactly the same about his childhood days. Whilst Lewin was down at Douglas Harbour, Victor Neal, born in 1918, was growing up in central Douglas at number 5 Myrtle Street, one of a row of 11 houses opposite the back of St Mary's Roman Catholic Church, which provided a ready-made playground for Victor, his brother and their friends. But Myrtle Street uh, on the other side was the St Mary's Church and uh, it's still there if you notice there's a sloping outcrop at the back of St Mary's. One of our favourite tricks was to get up on this slope with our back to the wall and see how far we could walk along before you <laughs> fell out. Uh, there was also a, an outcropped uh, door, the back door of the church, and it had a little place above it, and a little wall round it, and there was a handy drain pipe, and this was a good hiding place to skin up there and lie down <laughs> right. behind this little wall. Alongside the church with shim and sail rooms where they sold old furniture and stuff like that and that was right opposite our house and we could run through that and go down into Hill Street where there was a cattle market. A cattle market in Hill Street and not a sign of most of the buildings that we can see there today. Something else missing from the Douglas streets of the 1920s is traffic. We played in the streets. There wasn't many uh, motor vehicles. They would have hardly been seen on the roads. The bakers would be coming with their horses and uh, carts. Uh, the milkman would come, a two-wheel float with a big milk can stuck in the middle, <laughs> and they would be dishing out the milk into the jugs you would leave for them, pints and quarts and half pints. 
because you had these little gardens in front in Myrtle Street and there was always a good supply of manure for the horses. Of course. And the first yeah. to see it was the first out with the shovel. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, we played with the top and whip in the streets. There was one we used to call window breakers because these particular top had a bad habit when you hit them. The string of the whip would get round them and shoot them up in the air and you never knew which way they were going. So you could break a window. Oh, yeah, and, and a few had been broken with them. Hoops were another thing. Of course. You know, any old thing that was round and you would be uh, with, a, with a bit of wire bent. Yes. You knew how to drive these things round and you could you used to play TT races because in those days the, the riders and the teams used to go to the small garages and the Sunbeam team in the 1920s, Charlie Dodson and Alec Bennett, they were in Circular Road. Oh, yeah. Uh, say Charlie Dodson and Alec Bennett, they were in there and we as kids used to go and be looking at them mm. and uh, run messages for them and at the end of the races we would get their number plates. Oh, really? And we'd stick these on our chests and and uh, tie down the string, and then we'd start racing round and round the block, and we'd run round for all day long. <laughs> yes. uh, they would be trying to do a hundred laps round <laughs> the lane in in Myrtle Street, and by the time you finished, you know you were just about on your chin straps. Yes. But it was all all part of the excitement. Another thing we used to make: very few of us had push bikes because we didn't have the money but we'd go out to the tips and uh, often enough you'd find an old frame and the handlebars and as long as you had that you stuck a bit of wood through the place where the pedals normally go get a couple of pram wheels and maybe uh, with a couple of uh, six inch nails in (laughs) order to fit them up and then you would go along treadling your way along till you come to the hill great fun going down the hills no brakes. No <laughs> you stick your feet down on the ground. And we all wore pretty hefty boots in those days. And it was a good job because uh, you would soon be wearing them out if you had some of the footwear they've got these days. As the, the, the summers got hot and the pavements be hot, we'd take our boots and uh, stockings off and run around barefoot for uh, a lot of the summer. What were the roads like then? Uh, the roads uh, were pretty rough, and uh, again here the, the, they would be tar spraying every year. Mm. And uh, uh, among the stuff that they put on as the top uh, dress and the the gravel, there was an awful lot of lead, and we would be there digging these pieces of lead out <laughs> of the, the the road surface to use them as weights on our fishing lines, which we'd make. Because down on the shore was a favourite place. My brother and I, we were were collecting cigarette cards and we used to go down on the promenade on a Sunday morning mm. and start at one end and go right along, right up to Onkenhead, looking for empty packets. And anybody who dared bring a packet of cigarettes out, you were up there, got any cigarette cards, mister? Oh, I see, yes. You would get hundreds of these cards in, in the summer, and we would go to one end, then back again, rush home for dinner, down again, and spend the whole of Sunday galloping along. 
we had a ways of earning money, extra money, because we had our penny pocket money each week. But then you could uh, run messages. Mrs. Kelly in number one was always a good touch for to run a message and get an extra penny. But we would go down the shore when the tide was out and we'd make pictures in the sand with shells and bits of orange peel and all the rest of it and uh, seaweed and then start shouting to the people to give us a penny, you know, for the, for, oh, for the yeah. picture. Yeah. And you would carry on till either the tide come in or a policeman arrived and <laughs> then you would do a bunk. We often say that there don't seem to be any real characters around anymore these days, don't we? But that certainly couldn't be said of Old Douglas in the early 1900s, as we'll hear in a moment. And there was also no shortage of animals with character, or troublesome parrots, as Alfie Gilmore now explains to David Collister. Another parrot on the promenade, it was uh, near... The Crescent Hotel, I've forgotten the name of the house now. And when the people in the summertime, they always put this parrot out on the steps, on a, on a prop on the steps, and he could whistle exactly like the tram car conductor, <laughs> and the horse would stop. And then he would whistle the second time, and the horse would start, and the <laughs> horse car, and they were playing hell about this, to decide that they would, after all, make it a stop there, because it is a stop about 10 or 15 yards further on. Yeah. So we let the parrot do the commanding <laughs> stop and start the horse car. <laughs> yes, stop and start the horse cars, just like that. Happy days. And back in Myrtle Street, Victor Neal clearly remembers the household at number one and some other memorable characters. In number one, there was a family called Kelly and uh, the head of the household was a baker who worked for sales on Broadway. Now, he bred canaries and budgerigas, and the whole of his attics were covered with uh, cages where all these birds were in. He also had a green parrot and a grey cockatoo, and they had three dogs, a greyhound called Needle, and then two uh, smooth-haired terriers, one called Prince and the other Nelly. Now, uh, in those days, the bakers used to work during the night and uh, so to get the bread ready when the shops opened. And uh, Phil Kelly would uh, come home walking sometimes through the Villa Marina grounds and up Finch Road. And if it was a fine day, the parrot and the parakeet used to be put out in the garden on a little table. And uh, as soon as Philip uh, come round the corner... At Prospect Hill, the old parrot would start shouting, "Here's Phil! Here's Phil!" <laughs> and the parakeet would be jumping up and down and screaming. <laughs> and the three dogs used to come out of that house and rush out to meet him. And all the canaries and the budgies up in the attic would all be chuffing. And so everybody knew when Phil Kelly was arriving home from work. There were, there were a lot of characters around Douglas in those oh, days, were terrific number. There was one, uh, Johnny Cubbon, who was known as Johnny Putty Nose, <laughs> and uh, his mother had a, a little shop just on the 
on the quay on the corner of Queen Street there, and uh, he'd be shuffling round selling the papers, and as he'd be going along, he'd be shouting, big boat in the bay, big yeah. boat in the bay. <laughs> and then anybody that looked at him, he would pull a face and stick his tongue out at you. And uh, <laughs> then there was Filario, uh, who had the hurdy-gurdy, and his monkey, and uh, the, the hurdy-gurdy was on a stick, and, yeah. and he had this little monkey. Uh, if my memory is he had a green jacket and a little red hat on, and the monkey used to go round with the little cup to collect the pennies. And then there was another fellow, I think his name was Tia, and he had a, a sort of battle organ uh, on wheels yes. pulled by a donkey, and he was quite a sloppily dressed fellow and quite heavy, and he would sit on the shaft of the cart, and his son would be dangling on the back, and this little donkey pulling the two of them along. Yes. There was Harry Winter, who went round selling vegetables, and again he had a donkey in the, the cart, and when they got to the raglan, the donkey wouldn't go past the raglan until they got a pint of beer for him. And he was the donkey in the film No Limit, wasn't he? Uh, yes. Yes. So uh, again, he was a character. <laughs> there was a, another fellow, a blind man, who used to play the violin on the promenade oh. under the arcade, and his daughter used to bring him down there and leave him there. Yeah. And he would play and uh, collect whatever people would give him. And in, in old Douglas, then, which was still there, presumably, there were some uh, uh, rough characters, weren't oh, there? Oh, Scare Lachlan, Pegleg Cayley. Yeah. They were real characters. Down round the quayside, it used to be a right rabbit warren there where the car park on Lord Street is now. Yes. Yeah. Dozens of little lanes and houses. And they, they would be down there uh, from Shaw's Brow going down into Barrack Street and uh, where Quine's Corner is now, that was known as Little Hell. That would be an area with, of the greatest poverty, would it, I presume? Uh, yeah, well, there was a lot of poverty there, but a, a lot of drunks. Uh, you've got to remember there were some good people among them, but uh, Little Hell, one of our favourite tricks as kids was to take a dare to run down Little Hell on a Saturday night. And uh, I can remember one occasion my father had taken my brother and I to the pictures and we were coming back up Police Station Hill when a drunk come across the road and uh, took a swipe at my father. A bad mistake he made because my father just gave him one clout and laid him out on the road on the steps of the police station and just said to us, hurry along, boys. We just left them there. Lewin Kane was born in 1906 and lived his whole life not so far from where our Manx Radio studios stand today. But the head road in Douglas that Lewin knew was clearly a vastly different one as he tells Bernie Quayle about the attractions that were part of his young days here on Douglas Head Road. I believe there was a gypsy caravan at some time parked up here on the head road. Is that right? 
That's right, the Boswells, the Gypsies, had both a caravan, horse-drawn caravan, and also a tent where a fortune teller did all the stuff. And they had a roundabout with springs right at the top of the Douglas Head Steps. And uh, that, of course, was very popular with the natives and the visitors alike after coming up the steps. Well, that, again, was a place where us kids used to play about, and I knew them all. Yates, the Boston burglar. Now, why was he called the Boston burglar? Because that was his trade. (laughs) (laughs) Say no more. (laughs) Now, Woodhouse Terrace on the South Quay, families that lived there practically staffed the whole of the Fort Anne Hotel. Fort Anne was the principal hotel in this area. Packed all day long, seven days a week, and, of course, it had the added allurement of the golf links, which had an 18-hole golf course, second to none, in my opinion, in the island, and I knew every hole because I caddied on it in about 1916 to 1918. And I remember a German, von Bussing, used to come up here to play golf every day and he used to, when he'd finished his golf round, he'd come down to the caddies and he'd give them all his shilling. And of course, we being patriotic, threw his money in the harbour. <laughs> till we realised it was daft and we went down the harbour to retrieve it. And from there on, we were in, we were in the big money, one shilling a day. There were two professionals inside who also made the clubs and uh, one professional girl, but the girl and her sister lived on the farm at the top of the hill. As you look opposite to you, you'll see the remains of it. That's right, yes. Well, they yeah. kept goats and sheep, and uh, people came up for the goat's milk. And the name of the people were Rennix. Jimmy Rennix, George Rennix, Jane Rennix and Mary Rennix. The father they used to call Jumbo, because that's the way he walked. Looking at the head there now, it's hard to imagine an 18-hole course. It must have been a very hilly course. It was, but you had to be very good to play it because the pigeon stream was the sixth hole and you played across the stream and across the valley. And if you got bogged down in the little valley that below you, you had a job to get out of it. So it extended quite a way over the hill then? Right almost out to the corner of Walbury. My goodness, it went a long way. Yes, and then, of course, it came back right over to the top of the how you're looking down over Douglas, and then 18th hole, it could be played with a putter. And our final story is one of transformation, from holidaymaker to hotelier. It's told to David Collister by Hilary Gard, and it begins whilst Mr Gard was still a native of Stourbridge in the West Midlands. Well, I came over to the Isle of Man on holiday. I was actually going to Dublin. I brought a car with me, an old Berkeley saloon, an Austin 16.6, drove up to the landing stage, went to the Dublin kiosk and said, a return two days to Dublin, please. And the man looked at me in horror. And because I hadn't camped out on the quay day and night for two or three nights, they wouldn't even entertain it. Really? Well, that's what it appeared to me. Anyway, they wouldn't take me. So a little higher up was the Isle of Man kiosk. So I went up there, very humble. I said, can you possibly get me over to the Isle of Man? I've got to get over for domestic reasons. Anyway, they took me on boat, craned me on, and we disappeared out of the bar, and the Dublin boat was still in the quay. I bet they wouldn't do that now, turn away potential customer like that. <laughs> no. And that's how I came to the Isle yeah. of Man. Yes. I used to come to the Isle of Man ever since I was a small child. 
because Dad used to work in Liverpool and he had a contractor, he was in the civil service, and he got it very cheaply, and he used to hire a cottage uh, for the whole su- our summer holidays for Mother and us three children. The fourth one wasn't born then. And we used to go to Laxey, Ballasalla, marvellous holidays we had. And then uh, I didn't come again. The last time I came was before the war in 1938 where I stopped at Cunningham's camp. And it was a marvellous camp. There was about, oh, 1,000 to 1,500 all men there. And I was there the last week before they broke up and we used to go along several hundred strong, about eight abreast along the promenade with different uh, homemade bands and things, singing and shouting. And there was no hooliganism, nothing like that in, in those days. And we paid uh, two, two guineas a week and that included all your food and sports. They had a sports field there. They supply you with the football boots, jerseys, the lot, and a bit of a swimming pool as well. It was a wonderful holiday. I mean, when you're young, you can eat, you know. And the, and the breakfast was a full breakfast. The one Cunningham had the farms, etc. And they bring you breakfast, bacon, eggs, and so, so on. And if you wanted an, another, you'd just ask for an, another breakfast. And if you'd eat three breakfasts, they'd bring you three, one after the other. Yes. No extra charge. And in those days, of course, I didn't drink, you know. And coming up uh, little Switzerland, there was a little shop there. And I was looking in the shop, and uh, it said, uh, pick me up uh, a shilling. Well, I thought that must be a good drink, that's whatever it was. And, of course, I didn't realise it, that it was something who was uh, really shot and, and woozy, couldn't stand on their feet with too much drink, and it had straightened them out. Yeah. Well, I drank this as a gulp, and, my God, it nearly killed me. <laughs> uh, yes. Then came to the Isle of Man permanently, then, after the war, did you? Well, I came on a beautiful summer's day in August. I was tootling along the promenade, and I stopped at the Grasmere. The sun was scintillating on the sea, and all the boarding houses were all seemed to me to be done in white. I think they all had to be done in the same colour in the old days. And uh, I knocked at the door of the Grasmere, and uh, a young woman came to the door, and I said, have you got a single room for three nights? Of course we haven't, she said. I mean, no hesitation. So I said, well, are you the proprietors? Well, she said, no. Well, I said, can I see whoever is? And, well, she said, you can, but it won't do you any good. Anyway, the proprietors came, who happened to be Mrs. Matthews, and I said to her in a very different tone, of course, can you possibly help me? I've come over here for two days. I don't drink. I'm not interested in girls. I'm just coming just to have a look around the island. Won't give you any trouble or anything like that, you see. Well, she said, hmm, well, you'll have to sleep in a different room each night. Oh, I said, I don't mind that. And I did. I was there for three... Well, I was there for nearly three weeks. I don't think I slept in the same bed more than two <laughs> nights because I met the doors of the house then and, uh, of course, I stopped longer. And yeah. I went back and sold out my business and I came over to the Isle of Man and uh, started up in the hotel business. Mr Gard's time in the tourist industry saw him running first the Grasmere Hotel and then the Hydro. But his reaction when he made his very first visit to the island never lost its impact. I said to myself, what sort of people are these that are allowed to live here in this paradise? Fantastic. After living and working in Birmingham amongst the uh, machine shops and the the noise and the dirt and the squalor, to come to a place like that is absolutely incredible. I mean, I would have been quite prepared to be a street sweeper and stop in the Isle of Man rather than go back to Birmingham and Stourbridge where I was working. (laughs) 
And so we close the archive room door for another week with my thanks to storytellers Hilary Gard, Lewin Kane, Alfie Gilmore and Victor Neal. And of course, thanks to the late David Collister and Bernie Quayle, who first gathered together all these wonderful stories, and to Manx Radio's present-day archivist Tim Price for all his help. Music is and always has been a huge part of island life and that's the theme of our stories next week. So I do hope you'll join me again as I open the door to the archive room just after six next Thursday evening or listen at your leisure to the podcasts of this series. Go to manxradio.com and search for The Vault. There you'll find all available episodes of the archive room and lots more from the Manx Radio Store of Nostalgia. But for now, this is Judith saying thank you for listening. And, well, I expect by now you have worked out who it is doing our vintage sign-off, haven't you? Anyway, till next week, so long, yes, sir.